This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now <clears throat> excuse me as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit this mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel i was made a minister according to the gift of god's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church. We need you. Help us, Lord, to come to you with boldness and confidence. Thank you for the promises and the life that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the grace that you give us. And thank you for the hope that we have in you. Please open our ears and our hearts to hear your word being spoken today. Please give pastors strength, wisdom, and clarity to teach us and to lead us well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I'll open your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, you're turning to a section that is probably the most skimmed over passage in this entire letter. If I were to ask you about chapter one, you might be able to say that the heights, right, that we talked about trekking where God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We know that verse. Uh, chapter two, the comforting teaching of by grace you have been saved, right, through faith. It's not by works. We know that. Okay. And then if we were to call up chapter three, what's there? Oh, and then chapter four, we start with the application. And it goes all the way to chapter 6, where we have spiritual warfare and the armor of God. But chapter 3 remains sort of a stranger to us. But there's a lot of theology in chapter 3. This is what we're going to see in the first 13 verses. Uh, the challenges of proclaiming the true gospel. You have challenges in proclaiming the true gospel today. There have been challenges even within this church body of proclaiming the true gospel to each other. We are provided a glimpse into the further revelation that Paul received. And we are given an interesting purpose of the church, which is out of this world, literally, that what is happening right now in this body, in the composition of these members, is displaying something to a world that we cannot see. It's a staggering statement about one of the, the primary purposes of the church. And there is a theology of unity. Don't miss this. 
There's a theology of unity in chapter 3 that hinges to chapter 2 that necessitates grace. And that's where I want to begin. Because not everybody, not even every Christian, not even every Christian leader understands and celebrates God's grace. As Paul calls it in this text, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are times, and I'm going to to use the corporate we, there are times when we love the performance and rigidness of the law more than we love each other. And there are times when we fear others and desire to please man more than we desire to please God out of a reverential awe of who he is. Let me just give four examples of this. Moses, his crime was murder. Those he tried to help held this against him. They had no problem that Moses killed an Egyptian. But then when Moses tried to intervene with two of the Hebrews, one of the Hebrews said this, Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And again, we're not excusing Moses' sin, but we must not overlook God's restoring him to leadership after his failure. Thousands of years later, Moses, the former murderer, appears next to who on the Mount of Transfiguration? Side by side with Jesus Christ. We so often fail to reflect God's amazing grace to others, don't we? David's sin was adultery. His crime was murder. His shame, a deliberate cover-up that had to be exposed by Nathan the prophet. Did David repent? Yes, Psalm 32. Psalm 51, one of the passages that was read for us this morning. Uh, We have it recorded in 2 Samuel 12. Did he pay for his sin dearly? Yes, throughout his life there would be the consequences. He would reap the harvest of his choices. Yet he continued to serve God as king in leadership. We so often fail to reflect God's forgiving grace to others. Peter's sin was pride, unbelief, lying, and the public denial of Jesus Christ, all while he served in office. This is more serious than we realize. I think we sort of categorize David and Moses' sin as something other and worse than what Peter did. But if we properly categorize it, let me read to you what Jesus said about denying. In Matthew 10.33, Jesus said, Whoever denies me before men, that's what Peter did, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That is a serious sin. But Peter was restored back to leadership by Jesus within 40 days. And folks, so often you and I fail as reflections of Jesus Christ to celebrate God's restorative grace in others because we would much rather sinfully criticize and judge Because somehow that makes us feel better. What do we know about the human author of the letter of Ephesians? I just want to bring it back personally. This is the letter. We've been looking at Ephesians. The high heights of Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. What do we know about Paul? Well, formerly he was called Saul. He was cruel. He was an absolutely cruel man to Christian men, women, and children. His license to be cruel was what? Religion. Even right truth in some senses 
He was such a bad man that even the disciples feared him even after his conversion. Listen to what Acts 9 says. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He had, he had attempted, if, if we would put it in our terms, he attempted to go to church with the other disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, I love that, but Barnabas. Folks, be like Barnabas. There's your moralistic vitamin for the day, okay? Be like Barnabas. In this case, not in the case we're going to look at. Don't be like Barnabas then. Um, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas took a risk on what? Not just on Paul. He took a risk on God's grace, his restorative grace, his forgiving grace, his amazing grace. We so often sing that as much as we fail to show it sometimes. He took a risk on God's grace. Paul would go on to become a missionary to the Gentiles and the author of at least 13 of 27 New Testament books. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Paul knew what grace was. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's what? Say it out loud. Grace that was given to me for you. Grace is not to be hid or hoarded, but dispensed to others. Look at verse 7, Ephesians chapter 3. Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Look at the next verse, verse 8 of chapter 3. To me, and note the humility, the self-awareness of Paul. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Chapter 3, 1 to 13, that's our text this morning, is in the Greek text made up of two long sentences. We're going to look at it in its natural division, two sentences. Here's the first section. A prisoner of Christ and a steward and servant of grace. Look at, look at verse 1, Ephesians 3. For this reason. Now that's going to link what Paul's about to say with what he had just said in chapter 2. It at least points back to chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, where God has taken both Jew and Gentile and made this new humanity, this new unity out of these two groups that were once hostile, once were divided, even by physical boundaries, and now he is bringing them together. So for this reason, at least that, perhaps all of chapter 2, because for Paul, the gospel, by grace through faith in Christ, is his north star. So for this reason, I'm going to write the next sort of seven to eight verses. Look what he says. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's an important detail. Right? There are four letters that Paul wrote from prison. We call these the prison epistles. This is one of them. Humanly speaking, whose prisoner was he? Rome's under, under which emperor Nero if you know anything about Nero you know he was not a good man to be a prisoner under especially if you were a Christian but Paul doesn't say that Paul doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the Roman Empire or I'm a prisoner of Nero he says look at it again look at verse 1 I Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus a prisoner of who 
Let me ask you, do you look at your trials like that? Your difficulties? Your restrictions? As though Jesus Christ Himself did it for a purpose? In Ephesians 6, verse 20, you can turn there if you have your Scriptures. Hold your place in Ephesians 3. Look at, look at Ephesians 6, verse 20. And you'll note, you'll note this phrase. Paul sees himself as, quote, an ambassador in chains. Do you see that? Paul's view of his imprisonment is that he was a duly appointed representative for Jesus Christ wherever he went. And that meant in prison as well. An ambassador in chains. By the way, it was Paul who wrote in the letter to the Romans, for we know that for those who love God, probably one of the most quoted verses out of context, but we know that for those who love God, all things, including imprisonment, work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul didn't just say that, he lived it out. He is writing to the Ephesians and he says, I am, an, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you on your behalf. In Colossians 4 verse 3, you don't need to turn there, but there's another. That's another letter that he wrote from prison. Paul sees his imprisonment as, listen to this, quote, a door for the word. This is a door is an entry point or an opportunity. You're passing through. It is a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Everything was a gospel opportunity for Paul. The only reason Paul was in prison was because he believed Gentiles had the same access to God through the same way that Jews did. You know, if Paul had only ministered to the Jews, sort of sidelined the Gentiles, or if he would have at least given in to the pressure to put the Jews sort of culturally and religiously, even just a little bit higher than the Gentiles, he wouldn't be in prison. If he would have just compromised a little bit about God's grace, just taken the edge off the grace of God just a touch by putting somebody socially or culturally or religiously just a bit higher, he wouldn't be in prison. But he is in prison because he would not compromise because the gospel will present challenges to you personally and to us as a church and there will be difficulty. Let me ask you, what is God teaching you about his grace is there someone you think is undeserving of God's grace? Is there someone you are not willing to endure difficulty for, rejection or another type of prison to make sure that grace is clear? Or have you compromised? See, Paul is not just a prisoner. He sees himself as a steward and a servant. You'll see this in verses 2 all the way down to verse 7. Look at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, Paul's a manager of what? What is he a steward of? What is he managing that is not his alone, but actually belongs to others? Keep reading. Of the stewardship of God's what? His grace that was given to me for you. Note these words. Look at verse, look at verse 3. You have the word mystery. Look at verse 4, you have the word mystery again. Verse 6, you have the word mystery. Look at the word revelation. That's used two times in verse 3. And then the word revealed in verse 5. 
This mystery is something that Paul is managing, and it has to do with what the gospel truly is. And he is communicating that to the Gentiles, which the Ephesian church was composed mostly of. This revelation then that was given to Paul, this further revelation, became Paul's mission. Now, I want to take a deliberate digression that's going to take some time, so don't get nervous. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Because we are told here, of course, in Ephesians, prison would not deter Paul, but neither would the opposition of other religious men. And that's going to be important to understand what Paul endured and persevered through to protect the truth of the gospel. Here we are told that false brothers were insisting that Gentiles needed to add gospel to the gospel, Jewish ceremony and dietary restrictions. That doesn't surprise us because Galatians says false brothers have have crept in secretly to spy out our liberty, to spy out our freedom in the gospel. They've snuck in and these false brothers, the Judaizers, are trying to add ceremony circumcision, and dietary restrictions to the gospel. The true gospel will always be challenged, but the challenges don't always come where we expect them. Look at Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. By the way, no matter which direction you go, it's up to Jerusalem. That's the way they viewed it. So even if he's traveling south, down from these Gentile cities, uh, Antioch and Syria, they're going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking, this is deliberate, Titus. Titus is a Gentile. I'm taking Titus along with me. Why did Paul go back? Look at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential. He'll call them by name in just a few verses. And I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. This is the gospel. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You do not need to go through Jewish ceremony, and you do not need to observe Jewish dietary restrictions. Jesus Christ is enough. But he's starting to feel like the other apostles aren't walking in line with the gospel, so he goes down to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. So I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. This was Paul's concern. Would the other apostles, leaders in the church, continue to walk in line with the gospel? He is concerned because he fears that the Jewish apostles are going to give in to their distinctively Jewish practices and cultural prejudices. Look at verse 3, Galatians chapter 2. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus is a living illustration that a person becomes clean and acceptable in Jesus Christ alone. So the whole point of Paul's trip was to preserve the gospel. Look at verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into what? Do you know, anytime you revise the gospel, even if you make it just a little bit more narrow, you pervert the gospel. Anytime you fail to show the grace of Jesus Christ as it is revealed in Jesus Christ, in the person of who he is, and in the scriptures, you enter back into slavery. 
If you say Jesus is enough, oh yeah, but you need to be ultra conservative. You have just put people into slavery. This is what scripture is teaching. Look at verse five. This should be our response when the gospel faces challenge. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that why? The truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's the battlefield. On one side, Paul is saying the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone is for all people and transcends all cultures and all prejudices to which we should say, amen. The other side is this. No, not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christian people near Israel should become Jewish. That is not the gospel. Here's what happened when Paul went to Jerusalem. Look at verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, he's not talking about the false brothers anymore. He's talking about the other apostles. He says, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, and I want you to get this phrase and understand it, added nothing to me. Paul's not being arrogant. What Paul is saying is that when he went there, With a Gentile, they didn't add anything to the gospel. Remember, he put forward the gospel that he was proclaiming and the other apostles added nothing to the gospel. They didn't say, you know, Titus ought to really get circumcised or, you know, Titus ought to not eat that kind of meat. They never said that. And by not insisting on those things, those apostles verified their rejection of the false gospel that the Judaizers were teaching. Not only did they refuse to add to Paul's gospel, but they ratified the gospel by doing something that maybe we take for granted. Look at verse nine. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, you know, these men. Who seemed to be pillars. Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That was not just a gesture of courtesy. The right hand of fellowship indicated unity and cooperation in ministry. The right hand of fellowship galvanized between these two men what the gospel really was in its truth and in its breadth. And then they said, this is the only thing they said, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, the Jews. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Titus is a living example displaying the implications of the gospel. Here are the implications of the gospel. Anyone can become a child of God without becoming Jewish or British or Italian or American or Baptist or Presbyterian or non-denominational or Reformed or dispensational or premillennial or post-millennial, or amillennial, or any other cultural or custom or peripheral application we may see in the Scripture. Christ alone is enough for fellowship. That's the Gospel. But it will be challenged. And it doesn't mean there aren't other lines down by which we separate. There are, but they're clearly in the Scripture. They're not man-made. The cooperation between the apostles was based on shared gospel truth, not shared ethnic or cultural or even church cultural sameness. 
Those are not the lines of the gospel. The lines of the gospel are the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what is our responsibility, brothers and sisters, when that is challenged? And it is challenged. What is our responsibility when good Christian leaders begin to live as though Christian unity is based on something else? Or something in addition to justification by faith alone in Jesus? You know, this is exactly what's going on in Galatians 2. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas, who's that? That's the Apostle Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, okay, he's no longer in Jerusalem. Now he's up in a Gentile city. Let's see how Peter behaves. I opposed him to the face. What? You weren't, we weren't expecting that, right? When Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposes him to the face because he stood condemned. Here you, here, here's, here's what's going on. Here we find two good men, Peter and Paul. And their choices say something about the gospel, but they did not choose the same side in the issue. Peter's over here. Paul is over here. And Paul has to confront Peter because he's condemned for the choices he's making. What did he do? He changed his eating habits. I mean, in general, that's what he did. He changed what he ate. Do you know good men can say the wrong thing about grace? Gifted men like the Apostle Peter, called by Jesus Christ Himself, appointed as the leader of the Twelve, can say the wrong thing about grace? You have an Apostle. You have what Paul has said, an influential pillar. You have a man who walked with Jesus personally, highly esteemed, appointed leader, but Peter changed his eating habits. And in doing so, he gave the appearance that he actually agreed with what the Judaizers were saying about the gospel and not what Jesus Christ says about the gospel. Verse 12 indicates the problem. Look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. See, not a problem. He was right. But when they, who, certain men, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Big problem. Try to understand the importance of what's happening. Peter grew up understanding that dietary laws were necessary for a worshiper to be considered ceremonially clean and acceptable before God in worship. People could not draw near to God if they ate unclean foods, if they touched dead things, if they had a disease. Even if they had eczema, they had to go do something about it because this was a teaching method that God designed to point them to the truth that you cannot approach God unclean. But here's what we need to realize. By the time of Galatians chapter 2 and the event that Paul's recording, Peter knew better. Here's why he knew better. He walked with Jesus. Mark is probably the account, first-hand account of Peter. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then there's this parenthetical statement in the Gospels. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So Peter shouldn't have changed his eating habits. 
Peter knew God had abolished the dietary laws through a vision recorded in Acts chapter 10. Let me read a small section of that. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And inside that sheet were several kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, God's voice. Listen to God's voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. I want you to hear this. What God has made clean, do not call common. It's a lot more than, than, than about abolishing the dietary restrictions because God is declaring Gentiles and sinners and Christian sinners in Christ clean. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Immediately following that vision, Peter meets Cornelius. What do we know about Cornelius? He's a Gentile. And he receives Christ and is born again. Now, don't miss what Peter says in Acts 10. He says this. And as he talked with Cornelius, he went in and found many persons gathered. And Peter said to them, listen to what he says in this group. Talk about, talk about losing your crowd in the first sentence. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That's how he starts talking to the group. But then he follows it up quickly and he says this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's the same thing Paul said in Galatians 2.6. God shows no partiality. Afterwards, Peter eats with Gentiles in the face of Jewish criticism. Acts 11, the very next chapter in Acts. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them. And it was Peter that pushes against Jewish narrowness. Listen to what he says. And after there had been made much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just that he's, as he did to us. So there's this us and them language. Verse 9, Peter says, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, listen to this, by faith. Not by ceremony, not by dietary restrictions, not by any other ism, not by any subculturalism, by faith. So why did Peter draw back on this occasion? And why does Paul have to do the difficult thing and stand him to the face and confront him? The true motivation behind Peter's defection was fear. Fear can pervert the gospel. Fear can cause good, strong Christian leaders to break under the pressure. But when they came, Galatians 2.12, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter, you know about Peter. Peter feared no man up until this point. 
And he was moved off center because of, of how much value he put into what other people think. And it gets worse. Look at verse 13, Galatians chapter 2. And the rest of the Jews, and it's not talking about the ones who snuck in now. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Even Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas is the one who took a risk on grace and brought, and brought Paul to the believers. But notice what Peter's fear did. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was swayed by Peter's false applications and failure to protect and preserve the gospel. Barnabas, one of the leaders of the Gentile mission, Barnabas, who went with Paul and Titus, who heard the resolve, Barnabas, who still respects Peter and now is swayed by fear. Notice what happens next. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with what? The truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, before them all, out loud, because he's doing it before everybody. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What did Peter mean? Well, Peter, while in a Gentile city, while he thought it was safe, did not focus on the boundary markers between Jew and Gentile. He considered Gentile believers equal, and he enjoyed table fellowship with Gentiles as he should. He even ate their food. That is why Paul is so astonished at Peter's hyper-separation. And Peter was implying to the Gentiles now that they had to live like Jews to be accepted by God. Let's make this statement, and we're going to go back to Ephesians 3. Legalism always threatens gospel community. There should have been Christian unity around the gospel in Antioch, and instead legalism crushed it. It resulted in pride and fear, not love and unity. And it treats others with exclusion and division rather than acceptance and unity. Why was Paul willing to face difficult confrontation with Peter and even Roman imprisonment? I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? Because now him being in prison is highlighting something about the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 6. This is what Paul is protecting. This is what he's fighting for. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery... Okay, I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. This is what the further revelation is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. See, now that statement should pop off the page. Because Peter was acting like they weren't. And Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of silly to think this. But most of us in here are Gentiles. And sometimes we're treating other Gentiles like the Jews treated the Gentiles. Forgetting that we're Gentiles. And we've been shown incredible grace through Jesus Christ. Because the playing field is level. We are saved in Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. Plus no thing. Nothing. Paul is willing because the truth of the gospel must be proclaimed in its fullness regardless of any and every type of opposition. Let me ask you, does that describe you? 
Or do you bend to the fear of what others think? Do you bend to the fear of what family thinks? Do you bend to the little side comments and you fail to protect and preserve grace because you fear people? Look at verse 7. Paul is willing to confront and be confined because he is a faithful steward and servant. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. That word means servant. And a servant serves. And Paul knew who his master was. And Paul knew who he was serving and what he was serving. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Okay, that's the first of two sentences. But do not fear. The second sentence will take five minutes. Here's Paul's purpose. Understanding your purpose will help clarify the actions that you need to take before you're intimidated, before you're manipulated, before you're overcome by crippling fear. This section was the sermon text for my ordination service before we left for Kenya. As such, it is a very special section to me. But look at verse 8. To me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, though I am the very least of all the saints. That is not false humility. That is genuinely how the Apostle Paul viewed himself. To me, though I am, the idea is the smallest of the small ones. This grace was given. What does that look like, Paul? To preach, to proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. An accurate self-awareness is important as we protect and preserve and proclaim the gospel. I love what Paul says in another letter, and really it's to the Corinthian church, which was very broken. He says that, that we have this treasure of Jesus Christ in earthen vessels. We are clay pots. We're all clay pots. The treasure, the worth is what is inside of us, and that is Jesus Christ. Grace was given to Paul for three purposes. Quickly, we're just going to read these. Look at verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We talk about things of wealth. We talk about things of value. Sadly, we often value. I want you to get this because I don't want us to fall into that, 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 this trap. I want to be a good shepherd to you this morning. So often, our value is our subculture of Christianity. We're not really praising and treasuring Christ. We're not really valuing Jesus. We're valuing liturgy or denominationalism or educational institutions or authors or conferences or our personal applications. But we're not really valuing and treasuring Jesus Christ. How do we reorient ourselves back to the true gospel? Christ is the treasure Notice what he says next in verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul takes this point and he draws it all the way back to the beginning of creation and he says, I'm going to bring to light what God has been doing all along. And Paul's mission is this, to make clear the mystery that was explained in verse 6. What is that mystery? That Gentiles are fellow heirs. So Jesus, before he ascends, he can say this to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, you can't preach what you don't fully understand. But now the disciples needed to understand that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. 
This is from point beginning creation all the way until Christ returns. Now look at the last thing he says in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know that the church, we, we often have such a low view of the church because we understand the churchy darkness and the points of weakness. But do you know God knows more of the churchy darkness and our points of weakness than we do? And yet he values the church. This is the bride of Christ. We're going to see that in Ephesians 5. Do you know that the church demonstrates something to the world that we cannot see? It's called heavenly places. And just like in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 2, verse 6, that phrase heavenly places points not so much to a place, but to a spiritual reality that we cannot see. Something about us gathering together today, men, women, and children, entering into the glad worship of God, because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, is saying something to an unseen world that their time is running out. N.T. Wright said this, It is precisely this many-sided, many-colored, many-splendored identity of the church that makes the point. God's wisdom is like a many-faceted diamond which twinkles and sparkles with all the colors in the rainbow. The rulers and authorities, however, both the earthly authorities and their shadowy counterparts, always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse, he says, they tend to marginalize or kill people or groups who don't fit their narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be, by the very fact of its existence, a warning to them that their time is up and an announcement to the world that there is a different way to be human. Isn't that what chapter 2 said? I'm creating a new man, one new man out of two. I'm creating a new humanity, one that is peaceful. And he closes with these two verses. Look at, look at verse 12. He's talking about Jesus Christ. In whom we have boldness, which you're going to need when people try to make you fear. And access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, he's writing from prison. He's already paying a price. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. At least one man was willing to suffer for the Gentiles. At least one man was allowed his freedom to be taken away so that he could say something true about the gospel, even though it cost him personally. We must understand grace, display grace, and dispense grace to others. Christianity is not a religion of works, but it is a, a truth of action. We dispense grace to others. We proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to invite our music team forward. With one final question, are others overwhelmed by the riches of Christ because of how you display and dispense grace to others. If there's something that your life connected to this larger local body says to the unseen world about the glad worship of God because of what Jesus Christ has done in His death and His resurrection. We're going to sing All Glory Be to Christ. This is an appropriate anthem, hymn of response to seeing what Jesus Christ has done and is doing. And while we sing, and, and I'm going to pray before we sing, 
If people are not overwhelmed by the grace that your life shows and dispenses, then what needs to change? Because something needs to change if people aren't overcome by God's grace through you. Let's pray.